24. Ends wall. In Scotland excavation has been more active, in particular at the forts of Beerens, Newstead near Melrose, Lynn near Peebles, Ardo between Stirling and Perth, and Castle Carry, Rough Castle and Bar Hill on the Wall of Pius. The internal arrangements of all these forts follow one general plan, but in some of them the internal buildings are all of stone, while in V.04P.0585 others, principally it seems forts built before 150. Wood is used freely and only the few principal buildings seem to have been constructed throughout of stone. We may illustrate their character from house estates, which, in the form in which we know it, perhaps dates from Septime Severus. This fort measures about 360 by 600 feet and covers a trifle less than 5 acres. Its ramparts are of stone, and its north rampart coincides with the Great Wall of Hadrian. Its interior is filled with stone buildings, chief among these see figure 1 and in the center of the whole fort, is the headquarters, in Lat, Principia or, as it is often though perhaps less correctly styled by moderns, Praetorium. This is a rectangular structure with only one entrance which gives access, first, to a small cloistered court X4, then to a second open court X7, and finally to a row of five rooms X812 containing the shrine for official worship, the treasury and other offices, closed by were officers' quarters. Generally built round a tiny cloistered cortex, zi, zi, and substantially built storehouses with buttresses and dry basements vi. These filled the middle third of the fort, that the two ends were barracks for the soldiers i, I zi, zi. No space was allotted to private religion or domestic life. The shrines which voluntary worshippers might visit, the public bathhouse, and the cottages of the soldiers' wives, camp followers, and see lay outside the walls, such were nearly all the Roman forts in Britain, they differ somewhat from Roman forts in Germany or other provinces, though most of the differences arise from the different usage of wood and of stone in various places, forts of this kind were dotted all along the military roads of the Welsh and Northern Hill districts, in Wales a road ran from Chester Pass to Fort Apcarhin near Conway to a fort at Carnarvon Segondium. A similar road ran along the south coast from Carleonanusk Pass to Fort Cardiff and perhaps others, to Carmarthen, a third, roughly parallel to the shore of Cardigan Bay, with forts at Lanio and Tom and Wymour near Festiniog, connected the northern and southern roads, while the interior was held by a system of roads and forts not yet well understood but discernible at such points as Kurgion Bala Lake, Castle Colin near Londra Dod Wells, the Gair near Brecon, Merthyr and Gilligar. In the north of Britain we find three principal roads, one led due north from York past forts at Catterick Bridge, Piers Bridge, Dinchester, Lanchester, Ebchester to the Wall and to Scotland, while branches through Chesterl Street reached the Tyne Bridge Ponzilis at Newcastle and the Tyne Mouth at South Shields. A second road, turning northwest from Catterick Bridge, mounted the Pennine Chain by way of forts at Ropey, Bows and Broth under Stainmore, descended into the Eden Valley reached Hadrian's Wall near Carlisle Lugu Valium, and passed on to Beerens, the third route, starting from Chester and passing up the western coast, is more complex, and exists in duplicate, the result perhaps of two different schemes of road making, forts in plenty can be detected along it, notably Manchester Mancunium or Mamusum, Ribchester Bramatenicum, Broomcastle Brocavon, Old Penrith Gorda, and on a western branch, Watercruet near Camel. Waterhead near the hotel of that name on Ambleside, Hard Knot above Esgale, Maryport Excel of Unum, and Old Carlisle possibly Petriana. 
in addition, two or three crossroads, not yet sufficiently explored, maintain communication between the troops in Yorkshire and those in Cheshire and Lancashire. This road system bears plain marks of having been made at different times, and with different objectives, but we have no evidence that any one part was abandoned when any other was built. There are signs, however, that various forts were dismantled as the country grew quieter. Thus, Gilligar in South Wales and Hardnot in Cumberland have yielded nothing later than the opening of the second century. Besides these detached forts and their connecting roads, the north of Britain was defended by Hadrian's Wall figures 2 and 3. The history of this wall has been given above. The actual works are threefold. First, there is that which today forms the most striking feature in the whole. The wall of stone 6-8 feet thick, and originally perhaps 14 feet high, with a deep ditch in front, and forts and mile castles and turrets and a connecting road behind it. On the high moors between Joylerford and Gilsland its traces are still plain, as it climbs from hill to hill and winds along perilous precipices. Secondly, there is the so-called volume, in reality no volume at all, but a broad flat bottom ditch out of which the earth has been cast up on either side into irregular and continuous mounds that resemble ramparts. Thirdly, nowhere very clear on the surface and as yet detected only at a few points, there are the remains of the turf wall constructed of sobs laid in regular courses, with a ditch in front, this turf wall is certainly older than the stone wall, and, as our ancient writers mentioned to wall builders, Hadrian and Septime Severus, the natural inference is that Hadrian built his wall of V.04P.0586 turf and Severus reconstructed it in stone, the reconstruction probably followed in general the line of Hadrian's wall in order to utilize the existing ditch and this explains why the turf wall itself survives only at special points. In general it was destroyed to make way for the new wall in stone. Occasionally as at Burdos while there was a deviation, and the older work survived, this conversion of earthwork into stone in the age of Severus can be paralleled from other parts of the Roman Empire. The meaning of the balloon is much more doubtful. John Hodgson and Bruce, the local authorities of the 19th century, Suppose that it was erected to defend the wall from southern insurgents. Others had ascribed it to Agricola, or had thought it to be the wall of Hadrian, or even assigned it to pre-Roman natives. The two facts that are clear about it are, that it is a Roman work, no older than Hadrian if so old, and that it was not intended, like the wall, for military defense. Probably it is contemporaneous with either the turf wall or the stone wall, and marked some limit of the civil province of Britain. Beyond this we cannot at present go. I, 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 the civilization of Roman Britain, behind these formidable garrisons, sheltered from barbarians and in easy contact with the Roman Empire, stretched the lowlands of southern and eastern Britain. Here a civilized life grew up, and Roman culture spread. This part of Britain became Romanized. In the lands looking on to the Thames estuary count, Essex, Middlesex the process had perhaps begun before the Roman conquest. It was continued after that event, and in two ways, to some extent it was definitely encouraged by the Roman government, which here, as elsewhere, founded towns peopled with Roman citizens generally discharged legionaries and endowed them with franchise and constitution like those of the Italian municipalities. It developed still more by its own automatic growth. The coherent civilization of the Romans was accepted by the Britons, as it was by the Gauls, with something like enthusiasm encouraged perhaps by sympathetic Romans, spurred on still more by their own instincts, and led no doubt by their nobles, they began to speak Latin, 
to use the material resources of Roman civilized life, and in time to consider themselves not the unwilling subjects of a foreign empire, but the British members of the Roman state. The steps by which these results were reached can to some extent be dated, within a few years of the Claudian invasion of Colonia, or municipality of time expired soldiers, had been planted in the old native capital of Colchester Camulodunum, and though it served at first mainly as a fortress and thus provoked British hatred, it came soon to exercise a civilizing influence. At the same time the British town of Marola Mean Street Albans was thought sufficiently Romanized to deserve the municipal status of a municipium, which at this period differed little from that of a colonia. Romanized Britons must now have begun to be numerous. In the great revolt of Boadicea 60 the Nationalist Party seemed to have massacred many thousands of them along with actual Romans. Fifteen or twenty years later, the movement increases. Towns spring up, such as Silchester, laid out in Roman fashion, furnished with public buildings of Roman type, and filled with houses which are Roman in fittings if not in plan. The baths of Bath Aquasulis are exploited. Another colonia is planted at Lincoln Lindholm, and a third at Gloucester Goldham in 96. A new chief judge is appointed for increasing civil business. The tax gatherer and recruiting officer begin to make their way into the hills. During the second century progress was perhaps slower, hindered doubtless by the repeated risings in the north. It was not till the third century that country houses and farms became common in most parts of the civilized area. In the beginning of the fourth century the skilled artisans and builders, and the cloth and corn of Britain were equally famous on the continent. This probably was the age when the prosperity and Roman Azotion of the province reached its height. By this time the town populations and the educated among the country folk spoke Latin, and Britain regarded itself as a Roman land, inhabited by Romans and distinct from outer barbarians. The civilization which had thus spread over half the island was genuinely Roman, identical in kind with that of the other western provinces of the empire and in particular with that of northern Gaul, but it was defective in quantity. The elements which compose it are marked by smaller size, less wealth and less splendor than the same elements elsewhere. It was also uneven in its distribution. Large tracts, in particular Warwickshire and the adjoining Midlands, were very thinly inhabited, even densely peopled areas like North Kent, the Sussex coast, West Gloucestershire and East Somerset immediately adjoin areas like the Weald of Kemp and Sussex where Romano-British remains hardly occurred. The administration of the civilized part of the province, while subject to the governor of all Britain, was practically entrusted to local authorities. Each Roman municipality ruled itself and a territory perhaps as large as a small county which belonged to it. Some districts belonged to the imperial domains, and were administered by agents of the emperor. The rest, by far the larger part of the country, was divided up among the old native tribes or cantons, some ten or twelve in number, each grouped round some country town where its council ordo met for cantonal business. This cantonal system closely resembles that which we find in Gaul. It is an old native element recast in Roman form, and while illustrates the Roman principle of local government by devolution, in the general framework of Romano-British life the two chief features were the town, and the villa, the towns of the province as we have already implied, fall into two classes, five modern cities, Colchester, Lincoln, York, Gloucester and St. Albans, stand on the sites, and in some fragmentary fashion bear the names of five Roman municipalities, founded by the Roman government with special charters and constitutions, all of these reached a considerable measure of prosperity, 
None of them rivals the greater municipalities of other provinces. Besides them we trace a larger number of country towns, varying much in size, but all possessing in some degree the characteristics of a town. The chief of these seem to be cantonal capitals, probably developed out of the market centers or capitals of the Celtic tribes before the Roman conquest, such are Isurine Brigantum, capital of the Brigants, 12 meters northwest of York and the most northerly Romano-British town, Riddy, now Leicester, capital of the Courtney, Viroiconium, now Roxeter, near Shrewsbury, capital of the Cornovii, Vandicillorum, now Cairwent, near Chepstow, Corinium. Now Serencuster, capital of the Dobuni, Iscadumnonurum. Now Exeter, the most westerly of these towns, Durnovaria. Now Dorchester, in Dorset, capital of the Durotrigas, Vandibelgarum. Now Winchester, Colabetrabatum. Now Silchester, ten meters south of Reading, Durovernum Candiacorum. Now Canterbury, and Vanda Isonorum. Now Caister by Norwich. Besides these country towns, Lundmium London was a rich and important trading town, center of the road system, and the seat of the finance officials of the province, as the remarkable objects discovered in it abundantly prove, while Aquasuli's bath was a spa provided with splendid baths, and a richly adorned temple of the native patron deity, Salor Sulis, whom the Romans called Minerva, many smaller places, too, for example, Magna or Comchester near Hereford, Durabrivi or Rochester in Count, Another Durabrivi near Peterborough, a site of uncertain name near Cambridge, another of uncertain name near Chesterford, exhibited some measure of town life. As a specimen we may take Silchester, remarkable as the one town in the whole Roman Empire which has been completely V.04P.0587 and systematically uncovered, as we see it today. It is an open space of 100 acres, set on a hill with a wide prospect east and south and west, in shape an irregular hexagon. Enclosed in a circuit of a mile and a half by the massive ruins of a city wall which still stands here and there some twenty feet high figure four. Outside, on the northeast, is the grassy hollow of a tiny amphitheatre. On the west a line of earthworks runs in wider circuit than the walls. The area within the walls is a vast expanse of cultivated land, and broken by any vestige of antiquity, yet the soil is thick with tile and potsherd and in hot summers the unevenly growing corn reveals the remains of streets beneath the surface. Casual excavations were made here in 1744 and 1833, more systematic ones intermittently between 1864 and 1884 by the Ref. J.G. Joyce and others. Finally, in May 1890, the complete uncovering of the whole site was begun by Mr. G.E. Fox and others. The work was carried on with splendid perseverance and the uncovering of the interior was completed in 1908. The chief results concern the buildings, though these had vanished wholly from the surface. The foundations and lowest courses of their walls survive fairly perfect below ground, thus the plan of the town can be minutely recovered, and both the character of the buildings which make up a place like Colaba, and the character of Romano-British buildings generally, become plainer. Of the buildings the chief are, one, forum. Near the middle of the town was a rectangular block covering two acres. It comprised a central open court, 132 feet by 140 feet in size, surrounded on three sides by a corridor or cloister, with rooms opening on the cloister figure 5. On the fourth side was a great hall, with rooms opening into it from behind. This hall was 270 feet long and 58 feet wide, two rows of Corinthian columns ran down the middle and the sailoristry roof may have stood 50 feet above the floor, 
the walls were frescoed or lined with marble, and for ornament there were probably statues. Finally, a corridor ran round outside the whole block. Here the local authorities had their offices, justice was administered, traders trafficked, citizens and idlers gathered, though we cannot apportion the rooms to their precise uses. The great hall was plainly the basilica. For meetings and business, the rooms behind it were perhaps law courts, and some of the rooms on the other three sides of the quadrangle may have been shops. Similar municipal buildings existed in most towns of the Western Empire. Whether they were full municipalities or as probably Kolodov was of lower rank, the Kolodov Forum seems in general simpler than others, but its basilica is remarkably large. Probably the British climate compelled more indoor life than the sunnier south. 2. Temples, two small square temples, of a common western provincial type, were in the east of the town, the cellar of the larger measured 42 feet square and was lined with perfect marble. A third, circular temple stood between the forum and the south gate. A fourth, a smaller square shrine found in 1907 a little east of the forum, yielded some interesting inscriptions which relate to a guild collegium and incidentally confirm the name Colliva. 3. Christian Church. Close outside the southeast angle of the forum was a small edifice, 42 feet by 27 feet consisting of a nave and two aisles which ended at the east in a porch as wide as the building, and at the west in an apse and two flanking chambers. The nave and porch were floored with plain red tesserae, in the apse was a simple mosaic panel in red, black and white. Round the building was a yard, fenced with wooden palings, in it were a well near the apse, and a small structure of tile with a pit near the east end. No direct proof of date or use was discovered, but the ground plan is that of an early Christian church of the Basilican type. This type comprised nave and aisles, ending at one end in an apse and two chambers resembling rudimentary transepts, and at the other end in a porch narthex. Previous to about AD 420 the porch was often at the east end and the apse at the west, and the altar, often movable, stood in the apse as at Silchester, perhaps, on the mosaic panel. A court enclosed the whole, near the porch was a laver for the ablutions of intending worshippers. Many such churches have been found in other countries, especially in Rome and Africa, no other satisfactory instance is known in Britain. 4. Town Baths A suite of public baths stood a little east of the Forum. At the entrance were a peristyle court for loungers and a latrine, hence the bather passed into the apoditerium dressing room. The frigidarium cold room fitted with a cold bath for use at the end of the bathing ceremony, and a series of hot rooms the whole resembling many modern Turkish baths. In their first form the baths of Silchester were about 160 feet by 80 feet but they were later considerably extended. 5. Private Houses The private houses of Silchester are of two types. They consist either of a row of rooms, with a corridor along them, and perhaps one or two additional rooms at one or both ends or of three such corridors and rows of rooms, forming three sides of a large square open yard. They are detached houses, standing each in its own garden, and not forming terraces or rows. The country houses of Rome and Britain have long been recognized as embodying these or allied types. Now it becomes plain that they were the normal types throughout Britain. They differ widely from the town houses of Rome and Pompeii. They are less unlike some of the country houses of Italy and Rome and Africa but their real parallels occur in Gaul, and they may be Celtic types modified to our own and use like Indian bungalows. Their internal fittings hypocausts, frescoes, mosaics are everywhere Roman, those at Silchester are average specimens, and, except for one mosaic, not individually striking, the largest Silchester house, 
with a special annex for baths, is usually taken to be a guest house or inn for travelers between London and the West Figure 6. Altogether, the town probably did not contain more than 70 or 80 houses of any size, and large spaces were not built over at all. This fact and the peculiar character of the houses must have given to Silchester rather the appearance of a village with scattered cottages, each in its own plot facing its own way, than a town with regular and continuous streets. 6. Industries. Shops are conjectured in the forum and elsewhere. V.04P.0588 but were not numerous. Many deer's furnaces, a little silver refinery, and perhaps a bakery have also been noticed. 7. Streets. Roads and see. The streets were paved with gravel, they varied in width up to 281 2 feet. They intersect regularly at right angles, dividing the town into square blocks, like modern Mannheim or Turin. According to a Roman system usual in both Italy and the provinces, plainly they were laid out all at once, possibly by a Grical attack. Agur, 21 and most probably about his time, there were four chief gates, not quite symmetrically placed. The town walls are built of flint and concrete bonded with ironstone, and are backed with earth. In the plans, though not in the reports, of the excavations, they are shown as built later than the streets. No traces of meat market, theater or aqueduct have come to a light. Water was got from wells lined with wooden tubs, and must have been scanty in dry summers. Smaller objects abound coins, pottery, window and bottle and cut glass, bronze ornaments, iron tools, and sea and many belong to the beginnings of Colida, but few pieces are individually notable. Traces of late Celtic art are singularly absent, Roman fashions rule supreme, and inscriptions show that even the lower classes here spoke and wrote Latin. Outside the walls were the cemeteries, not yet explored, of suburbs we had as yet no hint, nor indeed is the neighborhood of Colida at all rich in Roman remains. In fact, as well as in Celtic etymology, it was the town in the forest, a similar absence of remains may be noticed outside other Romano-British towns, and is significant of their economic position. Such doubtless were most of the towns of Roman Britain thoroughly Romanized, peopled with Roman-speaking citizens, furnished with Roman appurtenances, living in Roman ways, but not very large, not very rich, a humble witness to the assimilating power of the Roman civilization in Britain, the country, as opposed to the towns of Roman Britain seems to have been divided into estates, commonly though perhaps incorrectly known as, villas. Many examples survive, some of them large and luxurious country houses, some mere farms, constructed usually on one of the two patterns described in the account of Silchester above. The inhabitants were plainly as various a few of them great nobles and wealthy landowners, other small farmers or possibly bailiffs. Some of these estates were worked on the true, villa, system by which the Lord occupied the great house, and cultivated the land close round it by slaves, while he let the rest to half free crony. But other systems may have prevailed as well. Among the most important country houses are those of Bigner in West Sussex, and Woodchester and Chedworth in Gloucestershire. The wealth of the country was principally agrarian. Wheat and wool were exported in the 4th century, when, as we have said, Britain was especially prosperous, but the details of the trade are unrecorded. More is known of the lead and iron mines which, at least in the first two centuries, were worked in many districts lead in Somerset, Shropshire, Flintshire and Derbyshire, iron in the West Sussex Weald, the Forest of Dean, and to a slight extent elsewhere, other minerals were less notable, the gold mentioned by Tacitus proved scanty, 
the Cornish tin, according to present evidence, was worked comparatively little, and perhaps most in the later empire. Lastly, the roads, here we must put aside all idea of, for great roads, that category is probably the invention of antiquaries, and certainly unconnected with Roman Britain see Ermine Street. Instead, we may distinguish four main groups of roads radiating from London, and a fifth which runs obliquely. One road ran southeast to Canterbury and the Cavendish ports, of which Richborough Redipee was the most frequented. A second ran west to Silchester, and thence by various branches to Winchester, Exeter, Bath, Gloucester and South Wales. A third, known afterwards to the English as Wadling Street, ran by St. Albans Wall near Lichfield Leto Situm, to Roxeter and Chester. It also gave access by a branch to Leicester and Lincoln. A fourth served Colchester the eastern counties, Lincoln and York, the fifth is that known to the English as the Fosse, which joins Lincoln and Leicester with Syrencaster, Bath and Exeter, besides these five groups, an obscure road, called by the Saxons Aitman Street, gave alternative access from London through Elchester outside of Bicester to Bath, while another obscure road winds south from near Sheffield, past Derby and Birmingham, and connects the lower Severn with the Humber, by these roads and their various branches the Romans provided adequate communications throughout the lowlands of Britain. Ivy, the end of Roman Britain. Early in the 4th century it was necessary to establish a special coast defense, reaching from the Wash to Spithead. Against Saxon pirates, there were forts at Prince Oster, Burdle Castle near Yarmouth, Bradwell at the mouth of the Colne and Blackwater, Reculver, Richborough, Dover and Limmy all in Count, Pevensey in Sussex. Porchester near Portsmouth, and perhaps also at Felixstowe in Suffolk. After about 350, barbarian assaults, not only of Saxons but also of Irish Scotty and Picts, became commoner and more terrible. At the end of the century Magnus Maximus, claiming to be emperor, withdrew many troops from Britain and a later pretender did the same. Early in the 5th century the Teutonic conquest of Gaul cut the island off from Rome. This does not mean that there was any great departure of Romans. The central government simply ceased to send the usual governors and high officers. The Romano-British were left to themselves. Their position was weak. Their fortresses lay in the north and west. While the Saxons attacked the east and south, their trained troops, and even their own numbers, must have been few. It is intelligible that they followed a precedent set by Rome in that age, and hired Saxons to repel Saxons but they could not command the fidelity of their mercenaries, and the Saxon peril only grew greater. It would seem as if the Romano-Britons were speedily driven from the east of the island. Even Roxeter on the Welsh border may have been finally destroyed before the end of the 5th century. It seems that the Saxons though apparently unable to maintain their hold so far to the west, were able to prevent the natives from recovering the lowlands, thus driven from the centers of Romanized life, from the region of walled cities and civilized houses into the hills of Wales and the northwest, the provincial center went an intelligible change, the Celtic element, never quite extinct in those hills and, like most forms of barbarism, reasserting itself in this wild age not without reinforcement from Ireland challenged the remnants of Roman civilization and in the end absorbed them, the Celtic language reappeared, the Celtic art emerged from its shelters in the west to develop in new and medieval fashions, authorities, the principal references to early Britain in classical writers occur in Strabo, Diodorus, Julius Caesar, the Elder Pliny, Tacitus, Ptolemy and Caesar's Dial, and in the lists of the Antonine itinerary probably about AD 210-30, 
Education Party, 1848, the Notitia Dignitatum about AD 400, Education Seek, 1876, and the Ravenna 7th Century Racial Faith, Education Party 1860, the chief passages are collected in Petrie's Monument to Hist, Britain, 1848, and alphabetically in Holder's alt Kaltiski Schiprix Caps 1896-1908, the Roman inscriptions have been collected by Woodner. Corpus Inscriptionum Latin, V.I., 1873, and in supplements by Woodner and Haverfield in the periodical Ephemeris Epigraphica, see also Woodner, Inscript, Britain, Christian A. 1876, now out of date, and J.R.H.E. Son Pictish, and C. Inscriptions, Proceedings Sock, Antique, Scotland, Shi, Shi, of modern works the best summary for Rome and Britain and for Caesar's invasions is T.R. Holmes, Ancient Britain 1907, who cites numerous authorities, see also Sir John Evans, Stone Implements, V.04P.0589 Bronze Implements, and Ancient British Coins with Supple, Boyd Dawkins, Early Man in Britain 1880, J.R.H.E.S., Celtic Britain 3rd Education 1904, for late Celtic art C.J. and Campbell and A.W. Franks Horry Fierce 1863, and Arthur J. Evans in Archaeologia, Volumes, Lee I. L.V. Celtic Ethnology and Philology C. Seldon are still in the age of discussion. For ancient earthworks C.A. Adrian Holcroft, Earthwork of England 1909. For Roman Britain C. In general, Professor F. Haverfield, The Roman Azotion of Roman Britain Oxford, 1906 and his articles in the Victoria County History, also the chapter in Monsen's Roman Provinces, and an article in the Edinburgh Review, 1899, for the Wall of Hadrian C. John Hodgson, History of Northumberland 1840, J.C. Bruce, Roman Wall Third Education 1867, Reports of Excavations by Haverfield in the Cumberland Archaeological Society Transactions 1894-1904, and R.C. Bosenkit. Roman Camp at House Estes Newcastle, 1904. For the Scottish excavations see Proceedings of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, XX, XL, and especially J. MacDonald, Barhill Reprint, Glasgow, 1906. For other Fort C.R.S. Ferguson, Cumberland Arch, Sock, Trans, Z.I., on Hardknot, and J. Ward, Roman Fort of Gilligator, London, 1903. For the Roman occupation of Scotland see Haverfield in Antonine Wall Report 1899, J. MacDonald, Roman Stones in Hunterian Muse, 1897, and, though an older work, Stuart's Caledonia Romana 1852, for Silchester, Archaeologia 1890-1908, for Cairo Winded, 1901-1908, for London, Charles Roach Smith, Roman London 1859, for Christianity in Roman Britain, Engel, Hist, Ref, 1896, for the villages, General Pitt Rivers excavations in Cranbourne Chase, and C, for volumes, 1887-1908, and Proc, Sock, of Ent, C.A., for the end of Roman Britain C. Engel, Hist, Ref, 1904, Professor Barry's Life of St. Patrick 1905, Haverfield's Roman is on cited above, and P. Vinogradov, Growth of the Manor 1905, B.K., I.F.J.H. Anglo-Saxon Britain 1, History, The history of Britain after the withdrawal of the Roman troops is extremely obscure, 
but there can be little doubt that for many years the inhabitants of the provinces were exposed to devastating raids by the Picts and Scots. According to Gildas it was for protection against these incursions that the Britons decided to call in the Saxons. Their allies soon obtained a decisive victory, but subsequently they turned their arms against the Britons themselves, alleging that they had not received sufficient payment for their services. A somewhat different account, probably of English origin, may be traced in the Historia Britannum, according to which the first leaders of the Saxons, Hengist and Horsa, came as exiles, seeking the protection of the British king, Vortigern. Having embraced his service they quickly succeeded in expelling the northern invaders. Eventually, 